Radio Mano Papachango. Earthlings, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. This is my podcast. I'm Chris Ryan. Those are the essentials. Uh, this is a Roma episode, Roma 45, I do believe. Uh, you know, I've got this um, file in my computer, Notes for Next Podcast, and um, I just jot things down in there like, oh, yeah, mention this and mention that. and talk about this and explore your thoughts on that. And when it starts to pile up like a traffic accident on a freeway in Texas, I know it's time for aroma because I got to clear this stuff out. And it's not fair to just dump it all at the beginning of some episode with some unsuspecting guest who thinks I'm going to, you know, they're on the podcast in the first 40 minutes. I'm yammering on about stuff that has nothing to do with them. That's not nice. That's not fair. It's very inconsiderate hosting. So that's why I throw them all into a Roma. So people who come here for the guests can skip the Romas. People who don't mind listening to me yammering on about things can wallow in it. So I'm going to be yammering for a while here. But before I do, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Lilo, who make the best personal pleasure devices on the planet. Lilo is like the Tesla of sex toys, the Apple of sex toys, the finest, highest ingredients, styling. I won't say they're handcrafted because I don't think they've got artisans slaving away in a garage somewhere. These are pretty high-tech, USB rechargeable, totally waterproof, high quality silicon. I mean, they don't look like sex toys. If you happen to leave this sitting out and your mother walked in and said, what's that? You could just say, that is a high tech communication device, mom. Be careful. Don't touch any of the buttons. You might call someone um, or erase the memory, you know, just, just make up some bullshit. She'll never know. The one uh, we're giving away this month, we've been giving one away every month for the last six months. I think we gave two away last month. It was a big month. Uh, the one we're giving away this month is, uh, I think, the best. Uh, I don't, I'm not a woman. I'm not a human with a vagina. I guess that's become, I, I shouldn't say woman anymore. I think they're now vagina carrying humans or something like that. Uh, in any case, I'm not one of those. Um, but if I were, I would want one of these. So if you're a woman or you uh, know a woman who it would be appropriate for you to gift her something like this, you should consider getting your hands on a Soraya Wave. Uh, I've had several female friends who said, yeah, I'm not into vibrators. I don't really see the point. Eh, whatever. And I gave them one of these, and every single one of these female friends have come back to me and said, uh, yeah, I was wrong. I get it. 
these this is amazing and uh i'm looking at the web page right now so it's lilo.com soraya s-o-r-a-y-a wave uh the luxurious rabbit massager there's a picture of a beautiful woman on a horse wearing like a silk robe and gold chains or something i don't know but my god i mean that's a hell of a photograph and then there's the soroya beautiful color too like a deep blue color uh yeah luxury brand of the year lilo uh, 2021 2020 excellence in product packaging i don't know how important the product packaging is to you but apparently they do it excellently um yeah it's a pretty amazing thing let me read oh toe curling wave motion technology that's what you want you know do you know why people curl their toes when they have orgasms it's an interesting thing it's one way you can tell someone's faking an orgasm if they don't curl their toes because it's a totally involuntary reflex the theory is that it dates all the way back to our lineage in the trees millions of years ago so that when you had an orgasm you're feet would hold on to the branch really tightly and you wouldn't just sort of forget that you're up in a tree and fall out that's the theory and i haven't heard a better theory so if you got a better theory let me know Uh, but anyway these have toe curling wave motion technology uh inspired by the caress of a lover's fingers soraya wave sculpted tip surges in a come hither motion like no other massager reaching your g-spot with ease so it's a rabbit which means it's got both an innie and an outie um and it's got the fully flexible external arm with ultra powerful vibrations and it's ultra extra soft silicon and it's true these things don't feel plasticky at all they feel really nice and warm and smooth very kind of like skin actually so anyway uh yeah uncle chris recommends the soroya wave definitely it's a beautiful little device you can use it in the shower in the bathtub recharges usb you know if you have a solar panel you can probably charge it from the energy of the sun and uh you know when you're out there in the wilderness camping all by yourself you know you're all set so we're giving one away you have to go to my instagram uh, feed uh, that chris ryan on instagram make sure you follow me follow lilo l-e-l-o dot com i think lilo at lilo is probably their their thing and um and then just say why you think you should win this particular device and uh, we will pick one out and we love to read the hilarious bizarre interesting uh descriptions or explanations for why you should win but to be honest it's kind of a random thing um but uh you know yeah put in your two cents and let us know what you think now while you're at lilo.com if you want to buy something you can get 20% off any full-priced item if you use the code Chris Ryan at checkout. That's Chris Ryan at checkout. Now, I'm going to throw this episode up right away. Today's Wednesday, March 24th, because 
that code is only good for the next uh, 10 days or no, nine days, what, eight days, I don't know, week. How many days are in March? I never learned that, you know, months that end in Y have this. I, I never learned it, so I have no idea. Anyway, it's only good through March, that um, code, because then they're going to be running some other kind of special um, and it doesn't apply to things that are already on sale. So it's any full priced item for the next to the end of March. Uh, after March, you'll still be getting a good deal because they're running some kind of special thing. So go to Lilo.com and get yourself a Soroya wave if you know what's good for you. Yeah. All right. So what's going on in the world? Man, what isn't going on in the world? Got another COVID surge happening in uh, Europe. Brazil is getting slammed. Uh, parts of the U.S. it's coming back. It's a strange time. And um, yeah, I don't know how to discuss it without uh, pissing people off. It seems like there's so many things that piss people off these days. And uh, it's hard to know how to talk about anything without pissing people off. So my particular approach is to just not worry about it and, you know, let the cards fall where they may. So uh, if anything I'm about to say pisses you off, I apologize, but it's just the way it is. I can't worry about it. Which brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk about today, which is an essay that came to my attention. Uh, I think somebody posted it on the Tangentially Speaking subreddit a few days ago. Thank you for that, whoever you were, are. Um, <clears throat> it's an essay called, it, it originally appeared in the New York Times. Um, it's called Power, No Thanks, I'm Good. It was published in 2019, and it is by Tim Kreider. And uh, so he talks about two different kinds of power, <clears throat> which which aligns with you know one of my favorite quotes, which you've heard me say before: "A man's wealth is best measured in the things he can do without." Right. So your wealth is either the things you have or the things you don't need. And I've always thought that the things you don't need is a better measure of wealth. Um, and this essay helped me understand why that quote speaks to me so much. Uh, he starts out by saying that he, the wish to have power over others is totally alien, that he doesn't understand why you would want to make people do things they don't want to do. Um, but he says later, he says, I would define power as the ability to make other people do what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what you want. In other words, basically freedom from the power of others, right? So if power is coercive, I can force you to come to work at eight o'clock every morning. I can force you to stay till nine. I can force you to work on a Saturday. Freedom is the ability to not respond to that kind of power or not be subjected to that kind of power. He says, like gravity and acceleration, these are two forces that appear to be different, but are in fact the same thing. Freedom is the defensive form of power, the power that's necessary to resist all the power the world attempts to exert over us from day one. So this is all true. Um, 
at least to me it's true, uh, it shows how not participating is a way of winning, right? If you refuse to be drawn into the world of commerce and mortgages and debt and slave wagery, uh, you win. Now, of course, it's not easy to find ways not to get drawn into that because the entire system is set up to pull you into it, to get you into debt as soon as possible. And now, you know, people graduating from college, 50, 60, $100,000 in debt. You're already part of the system unless you find a way to slip uh, through the bars and get out of there. Um but it's very difficult. You have to be very clever and you need to keep your expenses extremely low so that you don't need that money to pay for things. Um, but he says, uh, ambition tends to have unfortunate side effects. Uh, my own ambition takes the comparatively benign form of artistic ambition, enough money to get by, women to like me, and so on. Um Freedom is a kind of power, but a certain kind of freedom also comes with powerlessness. Now, this is an interesting point. He talks about when he was a young artist and uh, nobody knew who he was or what he was doing. He could get away with all sorts of things. But the more power you attain, the more circumscribed that power becomes. Hmm, interesting. I've often thought that, in a sense, one of the least free people on earth must be the president of the United States an office no one can attain without becoming beholden to campaign donors, lobbyists, party leaders, and other in invisible fixers, and whose policy options are constrained to the narrow slit of the American political spectrum. Um, yeah, the most essential freedom is the power to move freely within the borders of your own skull, doing exactly what you want. Now, he goes through you know, sort of, in a way, uh, putting down people who are chasing power and wealth and fame and all these things. And he says, the under, underlying, the pathetic quest for all power is fear, the fear of death. I think this is so true. This is something I was trying to get at in Civilized to Death. That so much of what's going on in the world is an attempt to run away or to hide or to distract ourselves from the fear of death, from death itself. Um, anyway, I think this is a very interesting essay. Power, no thanks, I'm good, from the New York Times. It's out right now on outline.com. You can find it there. Um, and I think this quest for power um, is playing out in, in many other ways. I feel like we're in a moment historically right now where religion has been discredited in the Western world. Um, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, the Catholic Church and Christianity in general has been exposed as a global pedophile ring um, 
which is sort of using sexual repression as a way to control people and has been for centuries. Um, But the people who are wielding that control are themselves controlled by it. And when sexual appetites are denied and repressed and shamed, they come out in ugly ways. We see this in child abuse in the Catholic Church. We see it. We saw it in Atlanta a week ago when that fucking guy went and shot all those women because he felt they were tempting him because sex is horrible and bad. And so instead of dealing with your own bullshit, your own conflicts, your own inconvenient or or, or frightening appetites, you try to eliminate everything in the external world that reminds you of these aspects of yourself. And so you go shoot people at a fucking massage parlor rather than going to therapy and working out what the fuck is going on in you. Uh, you know, <clears throat> start to ask some questions to your church that tells you that those are that's Satan within you, that those appetites are evidence of Satan. And therefore, through some twisted logic, it makes sense to go and murder people. We see this happening all over the place. And um, I think that it, it this fanaticism um, comes out in social media as well. It comes out in this sort of cancel culture. How dare you? You're one of them. You're not one of us. Um, dynamic that, that plays out. Right now, Dan Savage is getting totally trashed on Twitter um, because a journalist who writes about the trans movement um, and who has uh, done some reporting on kids who at you know 12, 13 believe themselves to be trans and they go and have hormone treatment or surgery and then five, six, seven years later they decide damn, I'm, I'm not trans, I'm just gay. But they've already done these irreversible things to their bodies. Um, this is a huge issue. This is an issue that if you comment on it publicly, you run the risk of being destroyed. And uh, this journalist, his name's Jesse Single, um, has written this stuff. And the dude is not transphobic he he's got no problem with trans people he's got no problem with the concept of transgender reality um he's just merely reported that you know we need to be careful about this because a lot of people believe things when they're 12 and 13 that they later decide they don't believe anymore um there's nothing controversial about saying that uh, and yet, if you had said to me when I was 13 years old, uh, you know, what's your favorite band? We're going to have it tattooed across your chest. I, I think I would have, I hope I would have said, maybe that's not a good idea. Or my parents would have said, how about if you wait till you're 18 before you get your favorite band tattooed across your chest? You know, like it might end up being Pink Floyd rather than the fucking Partridge family. Very few of you are going to get that reference, but... For a couple of oldsters who do, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, 
so anyway, this this guy Jesse Single has written these articles, and then um, he's getting trashed as being transphobic, and he's a monster, he's horrible. And Dan Savage came out and said, "Hey, this is unfair. What's happening to him? He's not an enemy of the trans community." And so, of course, now Dan Savage is getting trashed. Um, you know, and there's all this eye rolling. I knew Dan Savage was a piece of shit. If you search Dan Savage on Twitter, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it's really interesting because it's, to a large extent, I don't think it's about Dan Savage. It's not about Jesse Single. It's about these people signaling to each other that we're on the same team, that we're together. Um, and they use this common enemy as a bonding device. Uh, and I, they're, they're not interested in actually examining the issues or having any kind of a nuanced discussion. It's just, you are the enemy. You are bad. You are evil. And so to me, it seems to be a displacement of religious faith. Um, and I don't know how many of these people would have been Christians 50 years ago. Right. But that's not really available anymore. It's not cool. It's not believable. And so I think a lot of people are left looking for that community bonding common enemy. We're in this together to fight against evil. And they're finding it in all these bizarre secular areas that pretend to be or claim to be about science or the truth, but because they're dripping in religious fundamentalism, but nobody's calling it that, that it's not really about truth. So people who write to me all pissed off because I talk about masks sometime and the, to me, obvious point that masks help slow the transmission of a contagious disease. People get all pissed off about that, but they're not really talking to me about the science. They send me some bullshit YouTube video from some guy in Holland that no one heard of until 10 minutes ago, who's claiming that vaccines cause more mutations or whatever. But they're obviously not looking at the data and uh, reaching a conclusion from the fact that, okay, there's this one guy who says this, but there are 10,000 virologists and epidemiologists all over the world who say that. No, they're part of a community. They're part of a group. And people in their group say this is true. And therefore, to be part of that community to feel embedded in that group that provides them safety, then they need to believe it too. And they get confused when someone like me comes along who they consider to be part of their community. And I say something different that causes all kinds of cognitive um, dissociation for them. And so it becomes really important to them that I be part of the group too. And, and to me, you know, that's a sign that this is a religious issue, not a conversation about, you know, the efficacy of masks or vaccines or whatever. 
Um, because I actually said this to one guy, I exchanged a little bit and, and then I saw what was going on and I said to him, listen, you care about this more than I do. You care about me agreeing with you. I don't care if you agree with me. And that should tell you something. Um, and it's all over the place. I got an email yesterday from someone who's, I think he's like the f CEO or the founder of some animal rights organization or something. And and he wrote, he's like, hey, I, I really enjoyed Civilized to Death, um, but have you considered the fact that our ancestors were herbivores, not omnivores? And uh, here's the evidence for that. And he named a couple, said a couple of things. And I wrote back and I was like, yeah, I've come across these arguments, but, you know, they don't hold up. Uh, look at bonobos, look at chimpanzees, very closely related. Look at our dentition, uh, the shape of our teeth. Look at our saliva, the, the chemicals in our saliva. Look at our digestive system. Look at the fact that our eyes are on the front of our head, not on the side of our head, which indicates predator, not prey, on and on. And he just totally ignored that. And he's like, yeah, but you need to watch this video because you don't get it. You're not thinking straight. Like... Okay, this isn't a conversation. Why am I engaging with this person? There's nothing that I could say that is going to change this person's mind. Therefore, this is not actually a conversation. This is an attempt to force me into submission. Um, you know, he even said, um, you know, the hunter, the fact that all the hunter gatherers that have been studied. Uh, eat meat is irre irrelevant because they use technology to hunt, that we are not natural hunters. That technology is artificial. I'm like, okay, so a spear is artificial. What about a beaver dam? What about a spider web? What about dolphins hunting in packs or orcas hunting in packs or wolves hunting in packs? These are all cultural or technological innovations. Um, and therefore, in his opinion, they're not natural. And then I said, well, okay, what if, what if I showed you evidence of humans eating meat using no tools whatsoever? Uh, would that change your mind? No, of course not. Nothing would change his mind. So we're not talking about data. It's not a conversation. I just feel like this is happening more and more. I read a book recently called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity by Douglas Murray really interesting book highly recommended and his point is that there have been these campaigns for um equality and recognition and uh you know dignity for marginalized groups and they have largely succeeded they've they've been extremely successful which is not to say that you know all forms of institutional um, discrimination have been eliminated, not by a long shot, but uh, we've come a long way in a short time. And what he's arguing in this book is that these institutions, the, you know, that are fighting for equality, they want to continue even when equality has been won, and therefore they continue on after the battle. So we see this all over the place. This is how the war on marijuana started, right? In the 19, late 1920s, when prohibition was repealed, 
Harry Enslinger, who was the head of the government agency that was fighting alcohol, suddenly his entire department was about to be eliminated. So he had to come up with a new enemy. He came up with marijuana and away we go. Budgeting keeps happening. You keep getting more and more money. You hire more people. There's a momentum. It doesn't matter. You've won the battle. You don't disband the army. Another example is the army itself. Literally, after before World War II, there was no standing U.S. military. There were no military bases full of people and equipment just waiting, ready, training to go off to some war that hadn't even started yet. If there was a war, you had to like get people, train them, make arms, get ready. And, you know, it took six months before you could go start shooting people. Now we're ready. We're ready to go in an hour. That's after World War II. The war was over, but the army didn't go away. Ah, we got to have the army all the time now. And what happens? What happens is there's no peace. Why would there be peace? You've got an army ready to go. It's a big investment. You can't have peace. If you start to have peace, then that army starts to look like a bad investment. All those jets, trillions of dollars worth of jets that we never fucking use. Starts to look like a bad investment. Then the people who make the jets, they're out of a job. The lobbyists for those companies, they're out of a job. The pilots out of a job. The maintenance people out of a job. Got to keep their jobs. That's the way the world works. Anyway, the book is broken up into four sections. Gay, women, race, and trans. And to sort of uh, just read a little bit to give you a sense of what he's saying here. He's saying, Our public life is now dense with people desperate to man the barricades long after the revolution is over. Either because they mistake the barricades for home or because they have no other home to go to. In each case, a demonstration of virtue demands an overstating of the problem, which then causes an amplification of the problem. In the section about um, women, there's a really interesting discussion of a video um, and a song by Nicki Minaj. Uh, What's it called? My Anaconda, I think it is. My Anaconda. Don't want none unless you got buns, hon. Um, He talks about the video. Nicki Minaj is in a bikini wiggling her bum for the camera. Sometimes she has a group of other women with her similarly dressed who wiggle their bums. The the author's uh, British, so he says bums. The wiggling goes on and on. And the chorus is, oh my gosh, look at her butt. Oh my gosh, look at her butt. Look at her butt. Look at her. Look at her. Look at her. Look at her butt. Um, A lot of um, butt wiggling going on. The women play with each other's butts. Uh, Nicki Minaj suggestively is eating a banana, then spraying a can of squirty cream onto her cleavage, then wiping her fingers across her breasts and feeding the cream to herself in a sequence that is obviously impossible to interpret. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then the video uh, switches to another scene where there's a guy sitting on a chair. And you can find this video on YouTube. It's it's all over the place. And uh, he's sitting on a chair. And the lyrics for this scene commence with, This one is for my bitches with a sad ass, uh, sorry, a fat ass in the fucking club. I said, where are my fat ass bitches in the club? 
Wearing just a bra on top and a pair of lacy leggings, she moves around the man, gyrating. She puts a leg over one of his shoulders. She leans in front of him, pushing her famous butt in his face and wiggling it up and down. Uh, so a lot of this goes on. And then eventually, the man, uh, as her butt is being waved right in front of his face for the umpteenth time, he is clearly getting sexually frustrated. Eventually, having wiped his mouth with his hand, he hesitates again before placing one hand gently over her buttocks, at which point it's over. The vocals go, hey, Minaj hits his hand away and walks out, flicking her hair back as she goes. As she makes this exit, the man leans forward in the chair and puts his face in his hands, apparently mortified at his inexcusable behavior. Yeah. Now, this, Murray goes on to say, is basically the situation that men find themselves in, in the dating scene in America. It's a, it's a double whammy. It's a, you know, come here, go away kind of situation. Um, back to the book, the confusion that Nicki Minaj acts out here is representative of a whole host of things in our culture. It contains an unresolvable challenge and an impossible demand. The demand is that a woman must be able to lap dance before, drape herself around and wiggle her ass in the face of any man she likes. She can make him drool. But if that man puts even one hand on a woman, then she can change the game completely. She can go from stripper to mother superior in a heartbeat. She can go from look at my butt waving in front of your face to how dare you think you can touch my butt I've been waving in front of your face. And it is he who must learn that he is in the wrong. What is the demand that's being made here? The impossible demand that cannot be met but which has been written into contemporary mores. It's that a woman must be allowed to be as sexy and sexual as she pleases, but that does not mean she can be sexualized. Sexy, but not sexualized. It's an impossible demand, and not just an unreasonable, but a deranging demand to make on men. But nobody wants to explore it because to explore it would be to uncover a whole world of unremediable, unsolvable complexity. Later in the same chapter, Murray talks about these concepts of toxic masculinity and patriarchy and male privilege and this kind of thing. And he says, of course, there are toxic traits within masculinity. Oh, sorry. Of course, if there are toxic traits within masculinity, the likelihood is that they are so deep um, that they exist across all cultures and are ineradicable. Or it could be that there are specific aspects of some male behavior, which in certain times and places are undesirable. If the latter is the case, then there are almost certainly specific ways in which to address the problem. But inventing case concepts like male privilege, the patriarchy, mansplaining, or toxic masculinity does not get near to addressing the problem, proving either too little or too much for the diagnosis at hand. The more obvious explanation from any outside analysis is that there seems to be a move less intended to improve men than to neuter them. 
to turn any and all of their virtues around on them and turn them instead into self-doubting, self-loathing objects of pity. It looks, in a word, like some type of revenge. I think a lot of women have a problem with this. A lot of women are alienated from what's being called feminism these days. Precisely because of that, because it seems that this, I don't know, what is it now, fourth wave feminism is more interested in revenge against men than it is in equality with men, living peacefully and with compassion in a world uh, of men and women. And, and he, he talks about this, how this idea that sex is not biologically fixed, but merely a matter of reiterated social performances, which is what critical theory, I guess, would have us believe. Um, and there's no biological difference between men and women. Uh, this puts a bomb under the feminist cause. Um because it leaves feminism with almost no defenses against men arguing that they can become women. But the whole attempt to turn hardware into software, that is biology into culture, um, is continuing to cause more pain than almost any issue for men and women alike. It is the foundation of our current madness, for it asks us to believe that women are different from the beings they have always been. It suggests that everything men and women saw and knew until yesterday was a mirage and that our inherited knowledge about our differences is all invalid knowledge. All the rage, including the wild, destructive misandry, which is hatred of men, the doublethink and the self-delusion stem from this fact, that we are being not just asked, but expected to radically alter our lives and societies on the basis of claims that our instincts tell us cannot possibly be true. Which circles back to what I was saying earlier. When we deny or shame or demonize what we know in our bodies to be true, we create the devil within ourselves. We create the evil that we think we're eradicating. Last thing I'm going to read from this book is just uh, a sentence here from the conclusion. Murray says, with each of these issues, with each of the issues highlighted in this book, the aim of the social justice campaigners has consistently been to take one gay, women, race, trans, that they can present as a rights grievance and make their case at its most inflammatory. Their desire is not to heal, but to divide, not to placate, but to inflame, not to dampen, but to burn. And I think that is, in fact, what's going on. And, you know, my sense is that it's because of this displaced religious um, enthusiasm, faith, fervor um, that is no longer finding a home at a church on Sundays or, um, yeah, in other places that uh, I'd be interested to know, for example, if there's more violence around 
sports teams than there used to be, if people are more fanatical about their allegiance to sports teams, because that seems like another place where this kind of energy would play out. And I do think that it comes down to a fear, ultimately to a fear of death, uh, as do most things. The psychologist Eric Erickson uh, wrote uh, 70 years ago, healthy children will not fear life if their elders have integrity enough not to fear death. I think that that is such an interesting sentence. Because if what's happening is that the elders, having lost their religious faith, now fear death in a way that they didn't a hundred years ago, because now the general sense, I would say, in the United States is that when you die, you're dead. That's it. You're worm food. You're dust. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. There's nothing left. There is no eternal soul. There's no reincarnation. There's no karmic energy going forward. You're done. That's it. It's over. I think that unleashes people like Mitch McConnell or, you know, politicians of both stripes to just pursue power. There's no limit. There's no governor on their diabolical natures because they believe that when they're dead, it's over. There's no judgment day. Doesn't matter. They're over. It's done. Party now, right? Live fast, die young. That creates a whole different kind of society than a society in which people think that the good Lord is going to judge them, that they're going to go to the pearly gates and there's going to be an assessment of what they did and who they hurt and who they helped. That's a different kind of world. And unfortunately, we live in a world where that's been removed. That fear of judgment has been removed. And uh, it's a strange place to be. Something will replace it. Something will come back because people need that. They need that uh, sense of being bonded by a shared belief. But for now, we're uh, free fallen. All right, a few other things I wanted to tell you about. Uh, I think I mentioned on the last episode that uh, my mother got her vaccine, so she's um, willing to drop things off at the post office again. So all of you people outside of the United States who wanted to order T-shirts or books or whatever and have been holding off, thank you for your patience. Mom is back on the job and she will be happy to send you things. Um, some of the large and extra large uh, civilized to death T-shirts and hoodies were out of stock. They're back in stock. So you can order those if you've been waiting for that. Other things I wanted to tell you about, I've been listening to podcasts because uh, I've been walking. I, I try to walk at least two miles a day. Uh, in fact, uh, as soon as I stop talking to you, I'm going to go go for my two-mile walk. Uh, it's awesome. I love it. It's uh, It feels good just to get outside. And also, I'm in a place with clean air and beautiful views and, you know, weather. It's snowing right now. It's really nice. Um, anyway, I've been listening to podcasts and I'm not trying to drive you away or it's probably 
not a not the smart thing to do for a podcaster to tell you about other podcasts, but God damn it, there's some good podcasts out there. So recently uh, I listened to, I think I mentioned I've been listening to Broken Record, which is a podcast um, done by Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin. Really, it's Rick Rubin does most of the interviews. He's a legendary producer. A musician. He produced uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Tom Petty and, uh, you know, a bunch of people you've heard of. Um, he's a musical visionary. Anyway, he's a really interesting guy. And it's cool to hear him talking with musicians because they respect him. You know, they know who he is. They, they admire his work. And so there's a kind of like, uh, you know, we get each other kind of vibe to it. Um, there's an interview he did with Andre 3000, who is um, one of the guys from Outcast. Uh, my baby don't mess around because she loves me so, and this I know for sure. But does she really want to, but can't stand to see me walk out the door? Yeah, it's an interesting song. You've heard me talk about that. Hey, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a really touching conversation. Um, Andre 3000 is so fucking smart and so sensitive and um, sincere. And uh, it's, it's, man, I love podcasts when this happens, when it's not people performing, it's not people giving their canned answers. It's two people having a real conversation and we get to listen in. And that's what I try to bring to you. Sometimes it works better than others. Um, it's decidedly more difficult to do it through a computer when you're hundreds or thousands of miles away from each other. At least for me, it is. Um, but uh, this conversation with Andre 3000 is really something. He's he's going through a hard time, and you know he's he's going he's suffering from his success. He feels hyper scrutinized the freedom to just do whatever the hell you want has been has evaporated because he's famous and you know everybody watches everything he does and they're analyzing everything he does and says and um he quite clearly feels trapped by that and um and he he speaks openly about it and uh, about the loneliness and the sadness and some of his difficulties growing up, learning disability and, and how that translates into, you know, performance and, and writing. And anyway, highly, highly recommended. Um, something a lot lighter, but also very enjoyable is... Uh, the conversation between Rob Lowe and Matthew McConaughey on Rob Lowe's podcast, which is called Literally. Um, that's cool because, again, you know, it's kind of like Andre 3000 and Rick Rubin. Like, hey, we're both in the same world. We know each other. We know each other's work, uh, mutual admiration and respect. Same thing with Matthew McConaughey and Rob Lowe, both not only both very, very good actors, but also both dudes who are like so good looking that they were dismissed as being just good looking. And then later in life kind of, you know, showed their their moves and uh, demonstrated their their chops as actors um, and proved that they were a lot more than just good looking dudes. 
Uh, if you haven't seen Rob Lowe's character, for example, in the, the Liberace movie, Beyond the Candelabra or Behind the Candelabra, I mean, <laughs> just look it up on YouTube. It is incredible. And he talks about how he came up with the, the hair and the look and the, the whole thing. Unbelievable. Uh, also, check him out. Like, if all you've seen is Rob Lowe on, like, the West Wing and, you know, some rom-com bullshit... Uh, definitely at least look up a few of those scenes from Beyond the the Candelabra and also uh, Californication. He plays a, a guy in California, I forget his name, but just trust me, just look up those scenes and look at the character that he came up with for that. It's fucking awesome. All right, I'm going to ta- stop talking. It's been 48 freaking minutes of me yammering on My Throat Hurts. And I want to go for my walk, so I'm going to stop now. I'm going to play a song by Joe Jackson uh, that I thought of after I, I posted the episode about uh, David Data and the whole uh, sort of, you know, from my perspective, uh, dismissal of women. And, and you know, I, I, I really rebelled against his dismissal of women as being sort of like um, irredeemably irrational and uh, you just have to treat them like children and you know there's no reasoning with women because you know they don't mean what they say and like I, I fucking hate that shit and I don't buy it and I have too much respect for women to ever sign on for anything like that um, but that's not to say that women's experience of life is the same as men's. It's just not. And, and that even ties into what I was talking about earlier with madness of crowds. That's a big part of um, this sort of denial of instinctive reality. This idea that, oh, no, you know, gender is purely a cultural construct and it's all just, you know, accumulation of repeated behavioral patterns that has been taught to us by culture. Like, Jesus Christ, that's bullshit, people. How can you not see that there's female and male energy in the world? I mean, God damn it, do you own a dog? I mean, is it a male or a female? There's a difference. Anyway, it's, it's just amazing how much time we spend arguing about things that are so obviously true. Like, for centuries, even now, there are scientists who are arguing over whether or not animals, non-human animals, have consciousness. If you spend a fucking hour with a dog or a cat or any other kind of animal, other than like maybe a lizard or a snake, but a, a mammal... Of course they have consciousness. They're looking at you. There's a communication. There's a rapport. There's a presence. It's obvious. It's so weird how we argue about these things um, that are just literally staring us in the face. Anyway, this song's by Joe Jackson. It's called It's Different for Girls. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to go to Lilo.com. Use the code Chris Ryan at checkout for 20% off whatever you buy. And if you want to enter for the giveaway, go to my Instagram feed, that Chris Ryan. Follow me, follow Lilo, and tell us why you would like the Soraya 
Wave 2 Super Amazing Rabbit Vibrator. Bye.